A hacker who calls himself the Dark Overlord is attempting to ransom stolen healthcare data and would Congress be able to solve society's crypto-related challenges if legislators had access to better crypto-related insights? These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Matthew Schwartz. In the United States, a number of stolen healthcare databases have recently come to light. To learn more about that, I'm speaking with healthcare info security editor, Marianne McGee. Marianne, thanks for joining us. Hi, Matt. What's been happening with patient data getting offered for sale online recently? Well, there's always been the speculation that when a healthcare organization is hacked, what happens to the data? And there's a lot of talk about how valuable medical records are. But in this latest case, a hacker who calls himself the Dark Overlord is basically selling the databases of four healthcare organizations, which include three healthcare providers and one health insurer on a dark web marketplace called The Real Deal. Basically, he's trying to sell these databases. They range from containing 48,000 patient records to 9.3 million patient records. And basically, he's offering them for sale to whoever is interested in buying this data for whatever purposes, whether it's to sell for identity theft sorts of purposes, who knows? Do we have any sense of how typical or unusual sales of this type of information might be? The hacker attacks on healthcare organizations is not unusual. It is more unusual to actually see the data showing up somewhere. For instance, Anthem tells me that the 79 million records that were stolen in their cyber attack last year still has not shown up anywhere for sale, uh, according to the company and law enforcement. So the fact that this other hacker has stolen supposedly four databases of four healthcare sector organizations and has put it up for sale is a little bit unusual and disturbing. Definitely disturbing. So what is the message here, especially for organizations in the healthcare sector? It seems like a lot of small organizations in particular have been targeted. Are they perhaps running systems with known vulnerabilities that they really should be getting fixed? Yeah, that's probably very much the case here. One of these organizations that was supposedly hacked is a small clinic in Missouri. The hacker claims that he stole these databases and then approached each of these organizations to extort money out of them before he actually put them up for sale. But it appears that these organizations might not even know that they were hacked until this hacker supposedly approached them about getting a ransom for this stolen data. Not knowing you've been hacked would certainly not be unusual for any organization these days, I think. That's true. And if an organization does discover that it's been hacked, it's often months, maybe even years after the fact. Thank you, Marianne. No problem. Moving to our next story. Will providing access to better information pertaining to encryption enable Congress to pass good crypto-related laws? That's the impetus behind an effort called the National Commission on Security and Technology Challenges that's been proposed by two U.S. legislators. House Homeland Security Committee Chairman Michael McCall and Senator Mark Warner, who's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, want their so-called Digital Security Commission to gather input from all sides of the debate so that Congress can weigh the best way forward. Warner says the 9-11-style commission would be composed of 16 members, would explore crypto issues, and also recommend a policy solution, a technology solution, or both within 12 months of it being launched. Here's Warner describing the effort earlier this year. 
I can tell you, as somebody who's got some background here, the complexity of this, and it, it, for policymakers to sort through getting that common set of facts that a commission would come forward with, common set of recommendations would be enormously helpful because this will have to be ultimately decided by Congress. The challenge will be how do we make sure this commission ends up being acted upon and the results uh, get promulgated into uh, you know, a set of rules that will protect people's privacy, ensure America's security, and allow America's innovative lead to be maintained around the world. Uh, and I think uh, that's what we're working through with the stakeholders right now. Um, the, the model is the 9-11 Commission. This week, the House Homeland Security Committee, which is backing McCall and Warner's effort to create the Digital Security Commission, released a new report based on interviews the committee has conducted over the last year, which it describes as being with a range of stakeholders. But the report, called Going Dark, Going Forward, a primer on the encryption debate, includes a glaring factual inaccuracy in its first sentence, which reads, Public engagement on encryption issues surged following the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris and San Bernardino particularly when it became clear that the attackers used encrypted communications to evade detection, a phenomenon known as going dark. That's what the report says. In fact, authorities have said that disposable burner phones, not encryption, was used in the Paris attacks. Likewise, they've reported no use of crypto in the workplace rampage, described by authorities as a terrorist event, that was the San Bernardino shootings, although one of the shooters did leave his work-issued iPhone behind, and that required passcode access to gain entry. Thus kicking off the contentious court case between Apple and the FBI until the FBI and the Department of Justice backed off. Again, however, a passcode does not equal encrypted communications. Now, setting aside these errors, the primer does make some good points, noting, for example, that this is a complex debate. Also, that the debate about encrypted communications isn't about security versus privacy. Rather, it's about security versus security. Namely, you either get strong crypto for all, which offers high levels of security, or else governments attempt to impose weak crypto, also known as backdoors. In theory, weak crypto would provide the good guys with access to devices as required during the course of an investigation. But in reality, numerous security experts have told me that anyone can abuse these backdoors, including unfriendly intelligence services, foreign nation states, unscrupulous business competitors, or what I sometimes refer to as advanced persistent teenagers. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. In the wake of the February heist of $81 million from Bangladesh Bank, many financial institutions around the world have been waking up to the fact that they face an increasing risk from hackers gaining access to their systems and attempting to make fraudulent, swift transactions. To talk about how institutions are responding to this threat, I'm joined by Tracy Kitten, our Bank Info Security Editor. Tracy, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Matt. So how exactly have institutions in the U.S. and beyond been reacting in the wake of these fraudulent, swift thefts that we've been seeing of late? Banking institutions have really kind of taken a step back and looked at how these transactions were exploited. One of the things that's come out is the fact that transaction verification and authentication of the transactions once they were initiated was a weakness and it was a vulnerability that was taken advantage of here by the attackers. And in terms of the Bangladesh bank attack, the money was stolen from their account at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. 
How was that authenticated if it was authenticated? So the Fed Reserve was basically just relying on the authentication that SWIFT had put in place. So once the request came in for the transaction, they did not do anything else to verify it. They just approved it and sent it on. So it was treated as valid? Yes. So does this have implications as the U.S. and other regions are attempting to move toward more real-time payment clearing and transfers? Yes, absolutely. And I actually spoke with Andrew Davies, a fraud prevention expert at core banking service provider Fiserv recently. And he was talking about how institutions, particularly in the U.S., are looking at these SWIFT-related heists as a way to say, hey, we need to take a step back before we move to real-time settlement. Because If transactions are not verified and re-authenticated along various endpoints during the transaction, it would be very easy for something to come in after it's been initiated and just approve it. And once that money is settled in real time, you can't get it back. And here's more from Andrew, Matt, where he talks a little bit about some of the steps that institutions are taking to help ensure that they can do real-time fraud prevention in some of these types of real-time transactions. The financial institutions that I'm dealing with are really working on analyzing and monitoring in real time the initiation of transactions and making sure that they're consistent with the behavior of either the customers that they're initiating the transactions on behalf of or any financial transactions that they're initiating on behalf of their own bank. So really monitoring that historical behavior, looking for deviations, pulling data into consortium models provided by their vendors, and looking at analyzing those transactions to make sure that if something is anomalous, they can stop the transaction before it's actually released into the settlement infrastructure. And so another important point to note here, Matt, is that banking institutions don't need to get overwhelmed, especially smaller institutions or mid-sized institutions that don't think they have enough data to really analyze or monitor the behavior and predictive analytics that are related to some of these transactions. They can actually work with their core banking services providers such as Fiserv, as well as vendors, to help bring in data from other institutions that would help them be able to predict or even detect some of this fraudulent activity in real time. Now, in the wake of the Bangladesh bank hack and some other fraud that's come to light, SWIFT issued a five-point security plan. And one of the points being pushed by SWIFT was attempting to get banks to share more threat intelligence and to communicate with each other better when they do suffer a malware infection that leads to these kind of attacks. So this sounds like it would slot in well with that. You would really need an organization such as Fiserv helping you out there, wouldn't you? Yeah, you really would. I mean, banks are sharing information behind the scenes all the time. And we see that especially at the top tier level. But when you get down to the midsize and smaller institutions, they're sharing information, but they just don't have the insight that some of the more high transaction volume institutions do. So definitely information sharing and working with core processors would definitely offer an advantage here. Tracy, thanks very much. Thank you, Matt. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Catch you next time.